0: The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. This is now our full-time jobs. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. If you want to show everyone else your solidarity, we now have an online store full of Southpaw swag. You can find links to both our store and our Patreon at southpawpod.com. When it comes to left media, we cannot exist without your support. This is Sam, this is Paul, and this is Fight Study. Before I begin this vet to champ fight study on Rafael dos Anjos, you can find a full transcript version of this episode, along with transcripts for previous fight studies that also include videos and extra commentary on our Southpaw Patreon. When Rafael dos Anjos, RDA, was slated to fight Anthony Pettis for the UFC lightweight championship, a lot of fans scratched their heads. Up to this point, the two things that RDA was most known for was being on the opposite end of highlight reels for Jeremy Stevens and Clay Guida. Stevens knocked out RDA in his UFC debut, and Guida won by jaw injury, of all things. What fell under the radar was the fact that RDA had quietly amassed an impressive win list and was looking better with each outing. Before his first title fight, RDA was already a 35 veteran with over 10 years as a pro, with seven of those being in the UFC the miles are much longer in MMA than it is in boxing. In boxing, 10 years and 30 fights might mean you're just hitting your peak, whereas for many in MMA, that could be a career. So how did RDA go from mediocre to world-class? Let's look at early RDA. When he first arrived in the UFC, RDA was already an 11-2 fight veteran with a solid BJJ base. Having won world titles at Purple and Brown Bell, RDA seemed like another welcome addition to the already competitive lightweight class, but no one was expecting him to become a future champion. During the time of his UFC debut, the current lightweight champ was BJ Penn, another fighter who first started in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. However, even though RDA may have had an excellent grappling background, he was no prodigy and struggled during the striking portions of his debut against Jeremy Stevens. It was clear that Stevens was much more comfortable during punching exchanges and didn't mind getting hit to return fire. RDA would overreact to punches, and as far as cage awareness, he had none. Though RDA is known for his seamless transitions from striking to grappling, that was not yet present in this fight. He struggled early on with takedowns. However, when RDA was able to take the fight to the ground, it was night and day. What became evident pretty soon was that Stevens' best chance at winning was to minimize the damage he took and avoid submissions at all costs. Being the UFC veteran to RDA's freshman debut, Stevens weathered the storm and uncorked the baseball pitch of an uppercut right onto an RDA who was caught backing up with nowhere to go. RDA's UFC career was not off to a great start. His sophomore outing didn't go much better. Matched up against Tyson Griffin, it was clear that RDA had little to no answer for Griffin's right hand and takedowns against the fence. To give RDA some credit, Griffin was at this point considered one of the best in the division and had only lost to Frankie Edgar, who would go on to become champion, and Sean Shirk, who was a former champion. All of the issues that were present in the Stevens fight were amplified. RDA would throw one-twos and hang out in the open giving Griffin the opportunity to slip and counter. He would circle to Griffin's power side and eat right straights. Griffin kept hammering RDA's lead leg with no consequence. RDA wasn't given much breathing room in back-to-back UFC fights, and it almost seemed like he would be released from the promotion sooner than later. When RDA eventually worked his way to a title shot, the reaction from many MMA fans were, he's still in the UFC? Fortunately for RDA, he eventually got some matchups that were more to his level of development. After rattling off three consecutive victories, it looked like RDA was slowly finding his groove. He was moving slightly better, and he looked less anxious to get the fight to the ground. Given his improvements, matchmakers felt comfortable pitting him against Clay Guida. Context is important in this instance, since some fans might only think of Guida as a journeyman. People forget that Guida was the inaugural Force lightweight champion and at this point had already amassed victories over the likes of Josh Thompson, Nate Diaz, and was at the height of his abilities over at Jackson Winklejohn. After he beat RDA, Guida went out to choke out a still dangerous Takanori Gomi and steamrolled Anthony Pettis who was making his highly publicized UFC debut as the last WEC lightweight champion. This was all to say Guida was legit, and in his fight against RDA, his boxing looked crisp and at one point it appeared that RDA's jaw was severely damaged in an exchange. After a takedown and some shoulder pressure on the jaw itself, RDA was forced to tap out due to injury. The loss itself was bizarre, but as Gus Johnson would put it, these things happened in MMA. RDA got the taste of defeat out of his mouth by rebounding with a KO win, over George Soteroopoulos, an ultimate fighter veteran who had never been finished before, immediately after Soteroopoulos, RDA drew Gleason Tebow, who was already 15 fights in the UFC at this point. Although the fight was close, there was a moment in the second round that seemed to spell the end for RDA, but he hung in tough, and the fight went to a split decision in Tebow's favor. RDA was now four and four in the promotion. And it looked clear that he would go down in the books as a UFC caliber fighter, but not a contender, not even top 10. However, in 2012, something changed. RDA became better. It's usually never one sole factor that helps an athlete turn a corner. And in RDA's case, there were actually two main things that drove his ascension. Working with Rafael Cordero at King's MMA and Nick Curson for his strength and conditioning. Well, three things if you count his involvement with Evolve MMA for their Muay Thai. Starting in 2012, RDA began working with Coach Cordero of Shooterbox box fame. Say what you want about the legendary gym, but one thing you can accuse them of is coddling their fighters. It was no secret that the hard sparring at Kings definitely toughened RDA, but what was surprising was the improvement in his footwork and head movement. Gone were the overreactions and low hands. This was a fighter who now knew how to lead with strikes instead of lunging head first. Instead of simply using kicks to set up takedowns, he now added them to give versatility in his strikes and get his opponents to start moving towards him. Against Donald Cerrone the first time around, RDA showed that his toughness combined with control aggression and technical striking is a scary combination. He moved forward but was careful not to expose himself and made sure to mix up his attacks, both high and low. Showing off a left hook that would soon become a trademark of sorts, RDA targeted the body of Cerrone before going up top with the right hook. This caught Cerrone clean and dropped him, showing that RDA's knockout over Sauteropolis wasn't a fluke. If you've ever wondered how it was possible for RDA to maintain such a high pace consistently, strength coach Nick Curson is part of that answer. Kurson trained under Marv Marinovich who was the only strength coach to get BJ Penn in shape. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Although this breakthrough performance was followed by a loss to Khabib Nurmagomedov, RDA quickly rebounded with the win over Jason High. In what became his most high-profile matchup to date, RDA got to headline his first UFC card against former WEC and UFC lightweight champion Benson Henderson. Not enough credit is given to Henderson for his striking, and it might be because his grappling often overshadows any technical sharpness he displays in his fights. The fight didn't last long, but RDA showed his ability to learn from fight to fight. Just when Henderson thought they were going to start exchanging punches at close quarters, RDA threw a double flying knee and caught Henderson while he was in the middle of throwing hooks. This dropped Henderson and had him scrambling for a takedown that RDA easily stuffed. While trying to get back to his feet, A short left hook dropped Henderson and gave RDA his first win over a former champion. Wanting to end the year with one more win and a case for a shot at the title, RDA accepted a fight against Nate Diaz. The way RDA dispatched Diaz showed all the signs of what was to come in the near future against Pettis. RDA mixed it up with beautiful infighting and battered Diaz with leg kicks. When Diaz went on the attack, RDA moved his head and shifted away. He pressured Diaz against the fence and moved up and down with his punches. The late kicks soon made Diaz easy pickings for takedowns. And if it wasn't for the grappling savvy of Diaz, it's very possible that RDA could have picked up a submission win. This led RDA to his first shot at the gold, a title fight against Anthony Pettis at UFC 185. As mentioned before, The RDA that faced off against Pettis was completely different from the one that debuted back in 2008. Unlike Anderson Silva, who I talked about in Fight Study episode 61, rather than a couple of key adjustments, RDA completely overhauled his game. This was a fighter that could exert pressure without leaving himself exposed. In backing Pettis up, RDA was able to force Pettis to fight out of a squared stance, removing power from his strikes. And cutting off paths for escapes. When Pettis did throw, Pettis shot off panicked arm punches that RDA absorbed using his entire body, his forearms, shoulders, and the top of his head. When Pettis finished, RDA returned the favor with more vigor. This was a specialty of Takanori Gomi during his legendary Pride run. He also wasn't afraid to trade kicks with the kicker, and with his back dangerously close to the fence, Pettis wasn't able to get full torque on any of his strikes. It's been said ad nauseum, but in order to fluster the kicker, you should kick them first. They don't have to be pretty, but they have to be consistent. In the lightweight class alone, Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje aren't the prettiest kickers, but their low kicks get the job done and have stymied better kickboxers like Pettis and Cerrone. Even Conor McGregor got in on the action and surprised Cerrone with a high kick before finishing him. By threatening Pettis with a kick or a straight from the southpaw stance, RDA made sure that his attacks from the same side remained unpredictable, a favorite strategy of another southpaw, Mirko Krokop. But were there takedowns? There sure was. RDA timed Pettis' punches and ducked under them to ground Pettis and press his back against the cage while he himself remained upright, killing Pettis' hips. This meant that Pettis wasn't able to go for his usual submission and scramble attempts and had to wait for RDA to slip up instead of trying to impose his own offense. The fight itself wasn't competitive at all. And by the time the bell for the final round rang, it was clear that outside of a miracle, Pettis was well on his way to losing his title. RDA looked absolutely perfect and decimated Pettis. What was supposed to be a long title reign was cut short. It's a testament to RDA's careful planning and execution that other fighters have gone on to replicate a strategy to beat Pettis in their own fights. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, after all. Pettis was never the same after this fight because he was unable to adapt the way RDA did after his losses. RDA's title run, however, didn't last long either. After running through Cerrone in his only rematch and title defense, He faced off against Eddie Alvarez and got finished in less than a round. Alvarez's performance deserves a deep dive in itself, but suffice to say that the pressure-heavy style of RDA worked against the darting movements of Alvarez. When RDA lost again, this time to Tony Ferguson, RDA opted to stop his difficult weight cuts and move up to welterweight. Given that RDA's 5'8 height and 70-inch reach is on the lower end of the weight class, many didn't expect much from him. To compound this issue, it was revealed that RDA was leaving Kings and forming his own gym so he can run his own camps. There are many examples of this kind of approach going bad, so it almost seemed like a foregone conclusion that the undersized RDA would suffer at the hands of much larger opponents. But with the help of Jason Perillo and Bubba Jenkins, RDA was able to adapt once again. For his welterweight debut, RDA got matched up against Tarek Sapadine, Despite having a losing record and coming off a hotly contested split decision loss over Donghyun Kim, Sapadine still had size over RDA and was a last strike force welterweight champion. Being another southpaw striker with a good takedown defense, it looked like RDA might suffer three losses in a row. However, RDA showed that the strategy that he utilized against Pettis had many uses Andy employed more or less the same game plan against Safadine. He pressured Safadine against the fence and threw kicks to his right side, who fought large portions of the fight in the orthodox stance, despite being a southpaw. He leaned in heavy against Safadine and took him down to score points. RDA also made sure to vary his strikes, both to the head and the body. He followed this up with a quick submission victory over Neil Magny which was made all the more impressive by the fact that Magny was coming off a win over Johnny Hendricks. RDA stalked out Magny, and one well-placed calf kick stumbled him down to the ground. RDA swarmed all over Magny, moving quickly from side control, half guard, and then back into side control before getting full mount. From that position, people were reminded that although RDA didn't use his submission game often, It's always there to threaten his opponents if they leave themselves exposed. Figuring that one more impressive performance could grant him a title shot, Ardia was given another headlining opportunity, this time against former UFC welterweight champion Robbie Lawler. Lawler was still in the mix, so to speak, at welterweight, and with his loss to Ty Woodley still fresh in the minds of fans, He knew that beating RDA would be another welcome chance to prove that he still has the medal to become champion again. Just like the Safedine fight, RDA faced off against another southpaw. Despite the danger that Lawler's hands possessed, RDA went after him. RDA hammered Lawler's lead leg and matched head movement for head movement. By focusing on aiming his low kicks below Lawler's knees, RDA was able to sneak them in despite having to throw them from further away. One of these kicks hobbled Lawler early and staggered him, setting the stage for things to come. Lawler is known for his calculated aggression and ability to slip punches to deliver his own offensive arsenal. What he always doesn't do a good job of is checking the leg kicks or moving his feet out of the way. Pete Spratt, Melvin Manhoff, and Lorenz Larkin all targeted Lawler's legs and made sure to keep that up even if they ate a punch or two, since chopping him down would severely limit his explosiveness and mobility. RDA clearly read that chapter in the Lawler book because that's exactly what he did. Once Lawler slowed down just a bit, RDA clamped on the tie clinch and threw an onslaught of knees. Even though Lawler worked RDA's body with hooks, he was countered with elbows and short uppercuts for his troubles. Although some fans doubted RDA's claims that he's been training with Muay Thai champions at Evolve MMA, this fight clearly showed that he had been diligently training his striking with at least someone that could teach Muay Thai effectively. Post Cordero, when he wasn't attacking with his rear leg, RDA used his inside low kick to punt Lawler and keep him off balance. Melvin Manhoff may not have won against Lawler, but RDA made sure to watch their fight and learn from it. Lawler was a former champion. And if the timetables were different, this could have been a champion versus champion fight with RDA becoming a two-division champion. As expected, a victory over Lawler gave RDA his coveted title shot, although it was for the interim welterweight title. Standing in his way was Colby Covington, who himself had rattled off five straight wins and looked like he could match RDA's gas tank. For the first time at welterweight, RDA's size deficiency showed. Though it was a competitive fight, Covington's wrestling and top control in the early rounds gave him an edge when it came to the judges' scorecards. RDA did everything right, but it was clear that Covington's ability to ground RDA and keep him there cost him, just like in the Nurmega Medoff fight. Even though RDA was able to score takedowns on Covington as well, it was just too little too late. RDA was given Kamaru Usman right after Covington and a similar fight ensued. Only this time, Usman kept RDA on his back even longer. No matter how many improvements RDA made, he simply couldn't make up the size difference. Welterweights like Covington and Usman were massive, cutting from as high as 200 pounds to make the 170 pound limit. Since his victory over Lawler, RDA is 1-4, with his sole win being over Kevin Lee, a fellow former lightweight who had trouble with the 155 pound limit. Although he was able to dispatch Lee in similar fashion to Magny, it took him longer and he absorbed more damage. His next two losses were to Leon Edwards and Michael Chiesa, both legitimate welterweights with height and reach advantages. Edwards used his reach to keep RDA at bay with sharp 1-2s and hurt him with short elbows whenever RDA closed the distance. Chiesa overpowered RDA and used his size and strength to overwhelm him on the ground. It's clear that RDA would benefit from a 165 pound weight class, but that's something out of his control. Even with his recent struggles, RDA's successes at lightweight and welterweight are clear indicators that sometimes it pays to leave your comfort zone. Instead of trying to find ways to simply get better at implementing his BJJ for MMA or learning to conserve his energy, RDA went 100 miles in the other direction. He enlisted the help of Rafael Cordero one of the best MMA striking coaches in the game, and one who embraces the hardcore sparring that's needed to climb to the top. Everyone knows that the old-school Shooterbox guys were tough and aggressive, but often questioned their skill levels. Outside of his native Brazil, and away from Rudimar Federico, Shooterbox's founder, Cordero was able to show the world how to take talented grapplers and turn them into fearless strikers. RDA isn't the only one to go through this metamorphosis. Take a closer look at guys like Benio Dariush, Fabricio Verdun, and Kelvin Gastelum, all well-known grapplers who became competent kickboxers in their own right. Ages ago, Frank Shamrock told reporters that he would beat Tito Ortiz through superior conditioning and he was mocked. RDA showed everyone again why this is so important, especially in five-round fights. RDA shocked the world when he beat Pettis and more or less made a blueprint for everyone else. His own transformation from a good BJJ fighter to a tough well-versed striker became a blueprint for a lot of future fighters, including guys like Usman and Covington, who ended up beating him. I said it before and I'll say it again. Imitation is a sincerest form of flattery, even if it whoops your ass. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content and along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a 5-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye.